Father, we thank you for the beautiful day that we've enjoyed, the break in the weather, and we thank you for the day coming to a close and your care for us through that day, your blessing upon our efforts, and we thank you now for the opportunity to gather again and to reflect on uh, the wonderful revelation of your plan of redemption in the glorification of your Son in his church. And we pray that we would grow in admiration for your wisdom in this great work and that we would be better fitted to be employed as your instruments. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you've had a, a flood of PFDs from the, uh, uh, I mean, PDFs. <laughs> I can never get that straightened out. I used to canoe a good bit. And so uh, PFD was an essential element to the canoeing operation. And every time I say the PDF, I, I want to say the other. But um, so you've had from me a revised syllabus, I hope. And um, then uh, for those who are thinking about uh, office, I sent out a required reading list and a recommended reading list. Um, You all are having mercy shown on you. The first three times I taught this course, these were all required readings. (laughs) But... um, I think we've weakened considerably in our uh, (laughs) endurance. Um, But in any case, you see the required readings. It's just straightforward. Book of Church Order, Confession of Faith. Uh, The Living History, you can get through the PCA site. Um, I'll be sending you Samuel Miller, the ruling elder. Uh, Ken Sandy's book, you can get anywhere, Westminster or probably the PCA or Amazon. And uh, Chad Van Dixhorn as well. Um, the only one, the ones that you'll be reading in relationship to our uh, lessons are, of course, the Book of Church Order and the Confession of Faith. And um, it'll be obvious to you which they go to once you look at the schedule. And I'll make sure that it's straightforward for Chad's uh, commentary on the Confession of Faith. Uh, I always used to use A.A. A. Hodge. Uh, on the Confession of Faith. It's an outstanding work, and uh, A.A. is not as famous as, as his father, and his learning may not have been as broad in uh, as his father, but I, I think in many ways he, he was a superior theologian. He, he was much more acute. Um, but uh, in any case, you don't really have to buy Robert's Rules unless you really want to. It's revised every 10 years, so we've just had a new revision of it. Uh, And you could get last decade's version for pretty cheap. They they drop through the floor every turn in the decade. But uh, I'll have some readings and information for you about that later in the course. But if were you to want to be much more involved in Presbytery or General Assembly, you'd probably want to have a copy of it because it, as you go higher up in the courts, the more important that becomes. Um, so there are a couple of comments about that. Then you see I sent out the reading list um, that I finally got uh, figured out. And so I'll be sending you readings on uh, the Wednesday before we'll be taking up that topic as I did today. 
So next time, Lord willing, we'll be talking about confessions and confessionalism and so on. And there are some readings that I've sent along with you. The, uh, I think they'll be interesting to you, but don't feel like you have to have read them before our meeting. That You can just as well profit from them afterward. Uh, so um, t- take your time with it as you will. And um, this week I sent out the message to all the churches. This was when the First General Assembly of the PCA met. This was adopted by the assembly and sent out to all the denominations in the country and many around the world. Um, They felt like they had a moral obligation to explain why they thought they were justified in separating from what was in those days the Presbyterian Church in the United States. And I had wanted, during our historical section, to go through it a little bit and make some comments, but we didn't have time. But I did want you to have a whole copy of the whole. And this also mirrored uh, what in um, 18, uh, 1860 or 61, I can't remember, um, what the Southern Church did when it broke off from the Northern Church. Uh, they also prepared a long document like this, uh, giving explanation, and uh, it, uh, it's, it, 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 the impulse for it goes all, all the way back, well, probably earlier, but at least in the United States, of course, the Declaration of Independence was a document where they felt like they had to, ex- it's a moral document, they felt like they had to explain to the world why they had a right to be a separate nation. And that sensibility is carried on in these uh, documents that I've been just talking about. Um, and then I uh, sent on to you uh, something called Spirituality of the Church, Illustrated in Contemporary Issues. We'll be talking about that a little bit tonight. Um, let me just comment briefly on what you have in today's mailing. One, a document called On Creeds and Subscription. It's quotations uh, from uh, some of the most important folk who've ever thought about and commented on these questions. A 17th century theologian, Francis Turretin, who uh, um, in the development of Reformed theology may be more important than Calvin. He uh, followed Calvin in Geneva. It was extraordinarily important theologian in his own day. And his works for many years, with respect to American Reformed theology, were the textbooks for uh, American Presbyterian ministers. Um, Dabney used him at Union, Hodge used him at Princeton, and he's quite a remarkable person. Samuel Miller was the first professor of ecclesiology at Princeton Seminary and a very acute thinker on polity and wrote a good bit about it. Uh, James Henley Thornwell was a 19th century Southern Presbyterian professor at Columbia Theological Seminary and also a man very acute on polity questions. And then I've also already mentioned to you A.A. Hodge, um, and he is the son of Charles Hodge, and it was also a very, very fine um, uh, thinker on polity questions. It's worth commenting, these men were all some of the most prominent theologians, most important theologians in the church, and yet they were all quite involved in and uh, acute thinkers on polity. In our own day, that's changed entirely. 
probably um, the ones we would think of as our most popular and important theologians have almost nothing to do with polity questions or participation in the courts of the church. And it's just a curiosity of what happened, especially in the 20th century, where the doctrine of the church came under a pretty acute eclipse. And I'll try and explain something of why that happened, but later in the course. But this is just an observation, by the way. Here we have some of the finest theologians of these periods doing outstanding thinking on the question of the church and its polity. Uh, you, you wouldn't find that today at all. Um, there's hardly a proper uh, course in polity taught in seminaries um, because seminaries have people from different church backgrounds. They just offer a kind of a quick study of your own book of church order. Um, and uh, it's one of the reasons why polity has suffered also. It's a, we don't have men trained uh, to think uh, with respect to questions of polity. And then um, the document, what is meant by uh, adopting the Westminster Confession by Charles Hodge. This was a very important essay of his. Um, Hodge would comment every year on the assembly. And in fact, uh, the Princeton Review, the, the most popular edition of it each year would be Hodge's discussion of the events at the assembly and uh, his take on it. And so he was very involved, and especially on this question of what it means to adopt the Westminster Standards. Uh, and then finally, a, a sermon uh, preached at a general assembly by uh, Robert L. Dabney in 1871 called Bur Broad Churchism. And it is a remarkable sermon. I think one of the most interesting ever uh, that I've ever read on the, the nature of the church and her polity in relationship to uh, the work of the church. And um, so I, I, that's the longest one, I think, and I, I didn't want to tax your um, endurance, but if you get a chance, I think you'll find something of value in each one of those um, items. Any question about anything uh, just structurally in what we're doing this evening or the things I've sent out to you? Anybody? All right. Well, let's plow into our topic. Um, I'm calling this First Principles of American Presbyterianism Part 2. We only have a little bit to go before we turn to the question of the spirituality of the church. Um, the, um, and, and I, I want to back up just a tad um, because I meant to say something last week and uh, forgot to. The second preliminary principle, um, you probably don't have access. Let me see if I can get to it quickly and put it in the chat in case you want to look at it. Here we go. Um, All right, it's in. Um, so, here's the text. In perfect consistency with the above principle, that was the liberty of conscience, you remember, in, in the first. Um, every Christian church or union or association of particular churches is entitled to declare the terms of admission into its communion 
and the qualifications of its ministers and members, as well as the whole system of internal government which Christ has appointed. In the exercise of this right, it may, notwithstanding, err in making the terms of communion either too lax or too narrow. Yet even in this case, it does not infringe upon the liberty or rights of others, but only makes improper use of its own. And you recall I said this was provoked by the new circumstances in uh, the what was now the United States, uh, where there was no state church. And uh, there, the liberty of conscience principle was partly the reason why there was no state church. Um, and uh, on the other hand, how would you form a set of doctoral commitments and governmental order um, if if the principle of liberty of conscience meant that anybody could be, there was no king in Israel and each one could do what was right in their own eyes. And so what they said is that, look, every group has the right to set up the terms for their group as best they understand it for the scripture. And uh, they might make them too... So, for example, reform people, maybe they'd say, okay, you can't be a member unless you're a superlapsarian. Well, that probably would be a bit narrow for terms of communion in the church. Um, But on the other hand, uh, they might say, well, uh, you can... Uh, be a member of our body, regardless of whether what what you think about um, continuing revelation and the s- sufficiency of Scripture. Well, that would sh- surely be too broad. How be virtually impossible for people to live in peaceful fellowship with some folks supposing they were getting continuing revelation from God, and the others saying uh, Scripture is the highest authority and. Um, uh, God has spoken, and we have told on that. Do you see that? So that they're saying you can err, but the point is everybody is voluntarily a member. They're embracing what has been published and uh, abroad and said, okay, here's the standards for the this church. So the PCA, for part, being part of the communion, as we saw beautifully last Sunday, for, for members is just an affirmation of the fundamentals of the gospel and the fundamentals of the order of the church. First three, the fundamental, most fundamental things of the gospel, sin, a savior, and discipleship. And then the most fundamental things of a, a communion of believers, uh, the worship and work of the church and its government and discipline. Um, but on the other hand, the officers of the church have to be able to affirm the Westminster Standards. Um, and I, I mentioned that, I won't go over again last week, but I'm just trying to r- remind you of where we are in this. That's what that second principle means. Now, in the PCA, in the late 20th century, the PCA was an interesting amalgam of folks when they began. And uh, there were probably four groups um, there would be um, the sort of banner of truth, really full-orbed uh, Reformed Presbyterian types, very self-conscious and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, then there were folks who were broadly evangelical, uh, 
with respect to polity, but were, were soteriologically reformed. That is, they were committed to the reformed distinctives with respect to the nature of the gospel. But they were much looser on questions of polity. Then there were those who were just broadly evangelical. Uh, and th- they thought this is important to have a conservative denomination. We don't really care much about all that work, interest evangelism and missions and so on. And so they were hardly self-conscious about the Reformed distinctives or the Presbyterian. And then there were even a few who uh, really weren't Reformed folk. Um, were just one that they weren't self-conscious. But you see, all of them together had been doing everything they could just to see the gospel preserved in the old Southern Church. And so they had a coalition, but once they came out, they realized they didn't have as much uniting them as what they were opposed to. Um, And um, so that meant over time, there was a portion of the denomination and also, I'll just throw this in. I'm going further than I want it, but now I've started, it won't make sense if I don't finish. Um, the old Southern Church, near the time of the split, began to claim the church property was held in trust for the denomination. That even though a congregation had raised the money, purchased the church, had the deed in its name, and so on. Some of the congregations, the property antecedent, it was antecedent to the existence of the denomination. But in any case, they claimed the property. And so when people started to talk about splitting, uh, there were threats from the leadership of the old denomination saying, well, you're going to lose your church building if you do that. And they ended up being litigated all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and uh, so folks in the PCA, there were two things that were, to a large portion of them, were very important. The phrase non-hierarchical. We're not a hierarchical church. Rather, we are a grassroots church. And so they wanted to say the, the impetus came from the bottom up, not from the top down. And those two phrases really became more important than any thinking about polity. <laughs> if you wanted to talk about polity, it had to be in that context. Now, um, the, uh, and, and, and they began to look for ways to sort of vindicate that. And what they found in this second preliminary principle was an interpretation that seemed to help them. Um, Some of them wanted to say, if our session wants to do thus and so, and it doesn't fit with the book of church order, well, look, the second principle says that we have a right to determine the qualifications of ministers and members and the whole internal system of government which Christ has appointed. And according to our own principles, you can't enforce the book of church order on us. Or some presbyteries wanted to say, we have our own internal government and you shouldn't try and enforce the book of church order or the confession of faith and catechisms on us. 
And they tried to say that that's what this principle was about. Now, that's absurd, but that may even have, for a while, I hope it's not anymore, uh, become a majority view in the PCA. And you can see how absurd it is. You couldn't have a denomination if this principle meant every session and every presbytery independently got to set up their own system of doctrine and government. You, You wouldn't have one church. You'd have 88 churches if it were presbyteries right now. Uh, and historically, it's completely anachronistic. Uh, n- nobody would have been able to imagine such an interpretation in 1788. So I wanted to bring that up because it's conceivable if you travel to uh, other parts of the church, you might hear of uh, somebody trying to uh, pull that off. But uh, the novel construction of that principle uh, would undermine the very existence of a Presbyterian denomination and lead to chaos. Um, well, anybody uh, a question or thought about that? Did that make any sense at all? Yes, the wits. Are you? Uh, not me. I didn't raise my hand. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. I thought I, I, I'm... They they say that uh, the pandemic can have an effect on your eyes. I, I think that it may be having an effect on my eyes. Um, all right, well, I'll press on then if nobody uh, wants to talk about that further. Um, so, um, preliminary principles. We have um, the principle of what a congregation amounts to, and it's found in Book of Church Order 4.1 and in Book of Church Order 6.1. A particular church consists of a number of professing Christians with their children associated together for divine worship and godly living, agreeable to the scriptures, submitting to the lawful government of Christ's church. So we're a people, we're a fellowship, but we're also uh, a, a people that ha- has a government and responsibilities to that government. The children of believers are, through the covenant and by right of birth, non-communing members of the church. Hence, they are entitled to baptism and to the pastoral oversight, instruction, and government of the church with a view to their embracing Christ and thus possessing personally all the benefits of the covenant. Uh, So it's parents and their children. Children are born members of the church, but members without all of the rights and responsibilities of membership. That will come at a time when they come to profess their faith in Christ and be received into communicant membership. Uh, We're going to talk a a little bit more about the theology of that, but that uh, when we come to our consideration of the doctrine of the church. But that is at least the principle that animates how we think about congregational life. Now on to worship. The fundamental principle with respect to worship is that the word of God governs the worship of the church. And that's found in Confession of Faith 21.1 and Book of Church Order 4.4. Here's the language. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited, 
by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or in any other way not prescribed by the Holy Scripture. This historically has been called the regulative principle. Um, the, uh, uh, that is, that scripture, scripture regulates worship. Um, the, uh, there are many people uh, who haven't thought too much about this, who see this as highly restrictive. Um, but I'll just say in passing here, I think this is a principle of, um, of liberty, and a principle of confidence. And thus it's precious. I say it's a principle of liberty in this, that if we don't say the scripture regulates worship, then somebody else is going to have to do it. A bishop, a board of elders, the whole congregation voting, but some imposition of what human beings think and want will end up regulating. It's a principle of liberty that I can't be bound under any form of worshiping God except the one that God has given in the scriptures. And that's a precious liberty. It's a principle of confidence. Why? Because um, if God has said it's acceptable, if I offer it, I know I'm going to be pleasing to him. I don't have to try and guess what is acceptable to God. God, in great kindness, has given us uh, a, a careful understanding scripturally of what's acceptable in worship, and that means we don't have to have any fear about it, it not being appropriate. So the uh, listing of that is found in four four. The ordinances established by Christ, that is the parts of worship, are prayer, sing praises, reading, expounding, and preaching the word of God, administering the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, public solemn fasting and thanksgiving, catechizing, making offerings for the relief of the poor and other pious uses, the exercise of discipline, and the taking of solemn vows uh, and ordination to sacred office. These things um, the um, Reformed Presbyterians have found warrant for them in scripture and thus they're a part of the worshiping life of the church uh, we'll talk about that further uh, also when we go to uh, the whole question of uh, uh, the worship of the church in detail now preliminary principle six um, in part uh, and book of church order three this has to do with the power uh, that uh, church power. And I've already given you a hint at the dynamic in the PCA, not hierarchical, not top-down. Now, what would be a hierarchical church? Well, Roman Catholicism, Episcopacy. Um, in those churches, the bishop has a governmental right and rule over others. Uh, he, he's like a, a, a prince in a diocese. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, grassroots, 
that could sound like independency. Uh, that in congregationalism, the power of the church is in the whole congregation, and the whole congregation has to make decisions if it's up to happen. Um, but now listen to the, what we have here. This is, I think it's, it's genius. The power which Christ has committed to his church vests in the whole body, the rulers and the ruled, constituting it a spiritual commonwealth. This power, as exercised by the people, extends to the choice of those officers whom he has appointed in his church. The officers of the church, by whom all its powers are administered, are according to the scriptures teaching and ruling elders and deacons, whose character and qualifications and authority, as well as the proper method of investiture, is laid down in Holy Scripture. So do you, do you see the, the genius of this? Um, the power vests in the whole body. The uh, people exercise that power in recognizing um, those whom Christ has appointed to office. Notice, the people don't make them officers. Christ does. But they have a right to recognize that work among them and set those people apart to that work. The people in general don't have the exercise of power, but they choose those that they recognize as appointed by Christ for the exercise of that power. So the officers don't get their power from the people. They get their power from Christ. The people, in making that choice, uh, aren't directed by the officers. They are faithful and obedient to Christ in recognizing those whom he has called. The, um, and all of this is laid down in Holy Scripture. Now, the, the genius of it is that um, the church doesn't, for its existence, uh, depend upon a temporal, geographical, historical connection to churches that have come before. They have it, but they don't depend upon it for their existence. Rather, they depend for their existence on the gospel being preached, Christ blessing it by the power of the Spirit, and then the people embracing the word and growing in discipleship, so that if we had 100 people on a ship and the ship was wrecked and um, they went to an island and they couldn't be found and a carton of Bibles washed ashore off of the ship and they started reading that Bible and God, by the power of the Spirit, opened their eyes to see the truth of it, they could have a perfectly well-formed church grow up out of that reality because the church doesn't grow up for any other reason than Christ working through word and spirit, and then organically they come more and more to reflect uh, the um, uh, uh, gospel 
teaching about ecclesiology. Do you see that? It avoids both the problem of independency and also the problem of the tyranny that can come from a hierarchical understanding of the church. Well, here we turn then to um, uh, a, a uh, chapter uh, concerning jurisdiction. Uh, we'll be looking in, at portions from uh, Book of Church Order 1 5 and 11 4 and 1 7. This is a longer portion, but let me see if I can explain it. Ecclesiastical jurisdiction, that is, the, the authority of the church, is not a several, but a joint power. I touched on this with Colin last week. Um, the, in, in other words, the power belongs to the elders together in council. It doesn't belong to them individually. It's to be exercised by elders in courts, session, presbytery, general assembly. I'm anticipating a little bit, but I'll just uh, note uh, those are arbitrary words. Um, they're not necessarily biblical, but they identify something biblical. There's a local government of elders, a regional government of elders, and a national government of elders. All of them have essentially the same powers because all of them are nothing more than a council of elders. The assembly has no greater powers than the session. But for the um, most thoughtful and effective action, it makes more sense for some of those powers to be exercised by some courts and not others. So, for example, the congregation um, admits, through the session, congregation members are admitted. It would make no sense for the presbytery to admit congregations, and certainly not uh, to admit members to the congregation, and certainly not the General Assembly. They intrinsically have those powers, but what do they do? They frame a constitution which sets out what parts of the powers will be exercised by what courts of the church. And they look for uh, decency and order. Remember I talked about my two favorite verses for polity, decency and order. They look for um, edification and then following the general principles of the word of God about these things. So these courts may have jurisdiction over one or many churches, but they sustain such relations as to realize the idea of the unity of the church. All of them together are part of the church, the church acting in an appropriate way at the appropriate level of um, uh, proximity to the need. For, and, and here's the point then. For the orderly and efficient dispatch of ecclesiastical business, it is necessary that the sphere of action of each court be distinctly defined in a constitution. Yet all church courts are one in nature, constituted of the same elements, possessed inherently of the same kinds of rights and powers, 
differing only as the Constitution may provide. The session exercises jurisdiction over a single church, the presbytery over what is common to minister sessions and churches within a prescribed district, and the General Assembly over matters which concern the whole church. The jurisdiction of these courts is limited by the express provisions of the Constitution. But again, thought experiment. Suppose um, the pandemic had run over the whole country except for New Mexico. And there, there's no general assembly at all. And the uh, deaths have decimated everywhere else. Could, and so there's a, a, a little church in the mountains of New Mexico that the, the bugs couldn't get to them. Their minister dies. Can they ordain a minister? Not under the Constitution we have. But the fact is that Constitution wouldn't be relevant to them because the circumstances would have changed so much. And as a council of elders, they could ordain a minister, taking upon themselves the power that's theirs intrinsically, but had been regulated to be exercised by another body as long as it made more sense for that. Do you see that? So it shows the tremendous adaptability of the Presbyterian understanding of governance. Um, so, although each court exercises exclusive original jurisdiction over all matters especially belonging to it, the lower courts are subject to the review and control of the higher courts in regular gradation. These courts are not separate and independent tribunals, but they have a mutual relation and every act of jurisdiction is the act of the whole church performed by it through the appropriate organ. In other words, when our elders at New Hope received new members, they received them not just for New Hope, they received them for the whole PCA. It was an act of the whole PCA through the Council of Elders that is most equipped to do that kind of act. When a presbytery ordains a minister, they not only ordain him for that presbytery, they ordain him on behalf of the whole PCA. He is a, a Presbyterian Church in America minister. Um, that particular court acting on behalf, as it's appointed in the Constitution, for the whole. Thus, finally, on this point, the scripture doctrine of presbytery, that is, Presbyterianism, is necessary to the perfection of the order of the visible church, but it is not essential to ex existence. And here again, back to that ecumenical point I made uh, earlier. Um, we think all churches ought to be Presbyterian, if we've been persuaded by that from the scriptures. But we don't think that folks who aren't persuaded of that aren't a part of the church and that their bodies gathered um, are excluded from the church because of that. The, what's essential to the doctrine of the church is a profession of faith in Christ and a commitment together as a congregation 
to worship and serve him. But to perfect that, we think, Presbyterianism was given in the scriptures. And it would be better for those folk uh, had they embraced that, and we would hope they would. Now, And we also hope that everybody else <laughs> offers us the, cha- uh, the same charitable view, that if, if Baptistic folk think that, uh, although many uh, Baptist churches now are virtually Presbyterian in the sense that they're governed by elders instead of just the congregation itself. Uh, but if, in, if independent churches think that that's really for the perfection of the church, not to have these larger governmental bodies uh, uh, troubling your particular region, well then, we would hope they'd say, well, this is for the perfection of the church, but those poor Presbyterians that have to deal with Presbyterians and General Assemblies, they're still part of the church. Um, So, then, uh, this is preliminary principle seven, and and, uh, united with Confession of Faith 31.3. All church power whether exercised by the body in general or by way of representation by delegated authority is only ministerial and declarative. It's an administration of Christ's rule. It's a declaration of Christ's rule. That is to say that the Holy Scriptures are the only rule of faith and practice, so that no church court ought to pretend to make laws to bind the conscience in virtue of their own authority, but rather all their decisions must be founded on the word of God. Um, And we confess that all synods and councils since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred, and therefore they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but only to be used as a help to both. Again, a a very critical principle of Presbyterianism. Uh, The church courts are not the lawgivers in Zion. Christ is. They're administrators of that law. They declare that law. They don't make that law. In fact, they don't have a right to make a law that would bind the conscience of another. Um, Here's the last of the preliminary principles, eight. And um, the concluding portion of it, I've combined it a a little with uh, preliminary principle three. The concluding portion of it is of great importance. Our blessed Savior, for the edification of the church, has appointed officers not only to preach the gospel and to administer the sacraments, but also to exercise discipline for the preservation of both truth and duty. It is incumbent, it is incumbent upon these officers and upon the whole church in whose name they act to censure or cast out the erroneous and scandalous observing in all cases the rules contained in the word of God. Now, of course, to, uh, the, the cast out the erroneous and, and scandalous, uh, it, it could be improved, but this is implied. The unrepentant 
erroneous and scandalous. That's what's in, in view here. People who are determinatively in, in that course. Um, now, here's one of the great points of our polity, this last line from Preliminary Principle 8. Since ecclesiastical discipline must be purely moral or spiritual in its object and not attended with any civil effects, it can derive no force whatsoever but from its own justice, the approbation of an impartial public, and the countenance and blessing of the great head of the church universal. There is a real discipline. It is a discipline that spiritually distinguishes between people. We'll talk about the, the forms of discipline and the censures and so on, but they are not intended to have any civil effects whatsoever. If a person were excommunicated from the church and they ran the hardware down, store down the street, you would be expected to continue to buy things from that fellow if that's where you got your hardware. And in fact, he might be urged even the more so to, to be in and from time to time talk to him and say, how are you doing? Have you thought about turning away from whatever it was that caused it and so on? You'd want to actually maintain those uh, relationships. Um, so no civil effects whatsoever. And, and here's the power of this. It has no force except for three things. It has to be intrinsically just. It has to be seen by the people to be just. And it has to have the blessing of Christ. That's why our courts are open courts. That's why the deliberations are open deliberations. Um, when the SJC meets... Anybody that wants to come and sit in on that, the meeting of that court has a right to do so. When the Potomac Presbytery meets, anybody has a right to come and observe the proceedings. And the point is that, um, remember that part of the power of the church lies, it's a commonwealth, it lies in, it's vested in the whole body. That's the power of the church at work when God's people see that the elders have done what Christ requires and they willingly assent to it and uphold it. All right. Well, I'm going to pause there for a minute. And, oh dear, <laughs> where did all the time go? <laughs> oh, well, anybody a question? or comment about all of this. There's a lot to think about. Um, but uh, uh, Will or Kate? Hey Dave, what was the third thing? Intrinsically just, seen by the church is just, and... Uh, the countenance, uh, that's older language. Uh, just the blessing of Christ. I, I, I love the way it's put. It's just we don't say this anymore. It's from its own justice the approbation of an impartial public. <laughs> That's my seem to be just. But wouldn't you rather give approbation as a part of an impartial public? I would, certainly. And uh, the countenance and blessing of the great head of the church universal. Dave, I, Dave, I was going to say that your thought experiments are 
very helpful. I'm a little concerned that they all have to do with things like shipwreck and pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> we have some more cheerful thought experience. Well, you can, you, you can, you can, you can see the Robinson Crusoe made a great impact on my mind. Great theology comes from Robinson. Yeah. Any other? Um, I have a question just because um, I know some of the difficult cases that you've worked on with the SJC, and there have been some where the public doesn't see the decision as just. Um, they have, and that has been very difficult because you all have worked so hard, and sometimes. The decision is so intricate, and you you know right, um, right. So what is what does that actually mean? I mean, how how does that play out? Because one church over what do you overrided the decision um, of the panel that you were on, and um, it was a so. Well, the first thing to note is that um, this is a framework commitment that the elders and the people have to have. The people have to be willing to hear and listen carefully and think through to see, and, and in fact with a hopeful anticipation, to see that it's been just. And the officers have to take the time to explain and elaborate and be willing to face uh, cross-examination and so on. Now, uh, what has undermined this pretty... Prof- I mean, all of our decisions are published every year. Now, I will say that uh, I don't think people are just sitting in late May thinking, oh, when will the SJC decisions be published this year? Uh, but they're there if they would read them. And um, the, uh, the commission has been at this long enough that I think in the main they do a very good job. I think sometimes there are those who want to say more than is needed and the decisions can seem rather long and laborious. I, I think... Um, uh, Calvin's great standards, claritas and brevitas. Uh, it needs to be clear and brief, <laughs> but uh, ought to guide. But the, the fact is what's happening now is that everybody who's got a website thinks they can be a litigant and an interpreter, uh, and, um, and people aren't getting firsthand information. They're getting fifth-hand information from people often who have no um, uh, legitimate uh, authority to speak. Um, that, that, that's what has, I mean, the Internet has made the work of church discipline extraordinarily difficult. Um, but I don't think it undermines the theory that every person in the position that I'm in as a part of adjudicating cases, has to have in my mind's eye the whole time that 
if a person would fairly look at what we're doing, they could see that this was the thing that we should have done according to the scripture. Right. And I suppose what comes in that into it, um, and it does in life and just even civil society, that um, there are times when, let's say, your commission um, has to suffer for righteousness' sake. Yes, that's right. Sure. Um, and that has to be in the mindset too, because you've seen that that people are out just for vengeance, um, and aren't willing to really hear the case. Really. Yeah. Yeah. We we live in the day of the church militant, not the church at its rest. Uh, so there are difficulties and battles, but that's. The, what Christ has called us to and we have to do that with charity and with um, patience and uh, you think of that wonderful litany in uh, 1 Timothy it must, Lord's bond servant must be uh, patient and gentle um, willing to hear and so on um, any other thoughts well I I hope you can bear with this. I want to start in the remaining time to in on the spirituality of the church. Um, and then I'll try and regroup for next week to do a little of each. Um, the, um, when we think about the spirituality of the church, there are two crucial points. The first is the doctrine of the spiritual independence of the church and its non-secular calling. The second is the doctrine of religious liberty. That's the flip side of the coin of the spirituality of the church. If the church has a right to be free from state control, so the state has a right to be free from the control of the church. The crucial thing here is we're talking about institutions. The state doesn't have the right to be free from the opinions of Christians, and the church doesn't have uh, a right to be free of the opinion of Christians. Christians have a calling with respect to both institutions. Only Christians with respect to the institution of the church, but Christians and many other sorts of people with respect to the institution of civil government. Um, so nothing here is meant to insinuate some limitation on the fullest participation in, by a Christian in civic life or in ecclesiastical life. But it's to say that both institutions are preserved at their best when they don't have anything to do with one another per se. Uh, there are circumstantial benefits that come to a state from good churches, and there are circumstantial benefits that come to churches uh, with a good state the way any other institution in that society has circumstantial benefits when... Uh, um, one writer put it this way, there cannot be two coordinate supreme 
and independent authorities, rightfully claiming the allegiance of the same people in the same sphere. The one must bow to the other. The church must dominate the state or the state the church. The only escape from these conclusions, both monstrous conclusions, is the separation of the secular and the spiritual spheres as are provided for in the scriptures and the constitution of the Presbyterian Church of the United States. Um, That uh, was written in the 19th century. Um, I think it reflects the magnificent contribution of American Presbyterianism to the church and the world. Um, A Virginia minister put it this way, the first ecclesiastical body, we believe, which ever gave consistent enunciation to the correct principles of religious liberty was the Hanover Presbytery in 1776. And the first commonwealth on earth which has ever enacted them distinctly into law was Virginia in 1785. The great truth taught by Virginia was the perfect separate independence and freedom of religion and civil government as two jurisdictions distinct and dissimilar. Well, first, so there's kind of a principled statement of it. Um, the, the, guy, the theologian I mentioned, Turton, uh, he was the first systematic theology I ever studied. <laughs> it was a freak of circumstances. Uh, it was all in Latin in those days. My Latin wasn't that great, but I happened to be with a professor who had found an English translation buried in a library and made the transcripts of it. Um, and Turretin, whenever he came to a, a new topic, he'd begin by saying, by what was called status questionis. What is the state of the question? And he'd say, now, I'm not going to be talking about this. I'm not going to be talking about that. I'm not going to be talking about this. And he finally narrowed it Here, here is precisely the question I'm going to try and answer. And it's, it's brilliant. So, what's the status questionis here? What's not being taught? Not saying that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. On the contrary, Christians have God-given duties as citizens. Not saying that magistrates can't be Christian, nor that his faith shouldn't inform his service. Believers may have a providentially appointed calling to this service. And if we consider the example of David and Josiah and Hezekiah and Joseph and Daniel and Moses and Joshua and the judges, after thinking about all of these, listen to Calvin. No one ought to doubt that civil authority is a calling not only holy and lawful before God, but also the most sacred and by far the most honorable of all callings in the whole mortal life of men. Now, is that a remarkable statement? And you think of how, um, well, I think Calvin's right, um, but it's people who have to see it as a sacred and honorable calling. But in any case, with respect to the separation of church and state, this phrase can be somewhat misleading to the inattentive 
It does not assert a separation of the religious and their religion from politics. It does not separate service and public life and religion, nor does it assert the separation of society and religion. Now, the problem we face today with respect to the doctrine of spirituality... Oh, I'll I'll stop there. That's a nice transition point. Um, And I'm I'm sure I'm already taxing you with this pretty heavy going, but I hope it's at least clear relatively and give you more to think about. Um, And we'll come back to this, and uh, I'll I'll catch us up at some point. (laughs) Any question or comment about this last bit uh, in particular? Um, The document I gave you... Illustrations. I I look at um, a thing that our session prepared and sent to the General Assembly, and the General Assembly uh, adopted it and sent it to the President of the United States and his cabinet and uh, all of the uh, leaders of uh, House and Senate. Um, and I hope as you read it, you'll be able to see how this was designed to specifically be consistent with the spirituality of the church, and yet have a moral testimony because of the circumstances there. Then you'll also see um, a speech I I think I uh, delivered to the General Assembly some years later when the Clinton policy, don't ask, don't tell, had been around for a long time, and now it was about to be ended, and it was the most (laughs) bizarre whiplash because there were a lot of Christians who were saying, if don't ask, don't tell passes, the sky's going to fall, the world's going to fall apart. It's absolutely needed for godliness. And then, and sometimes the same people said, if we don't preserve don't ask, don't tell, the sky's going to fall, the republic's going to fall apart. And um, and so you, you can see it trying to address practically the, the way the doc, doctrine works its way out. And then I have a wonderful statement from our former state clerk, Roy Taylor, once the marriage law changed, that helps you can see how you can navigate it. Um, but, uh, well, any thoughts, questions, comments? <laughs> yes, Will or Kate? It's me, Dave. I, I read all that stuff, but what I'm wrestling with is what if the state has done something so horrifying like the Holocaust, you know, and and the, is the church still not required to say anything about systematic genocide? Or? Well, how do, they, how do they come to know about it? Through seeing it? The, um, most, yeah. at least in my reading of the Third Reich, for example, most Germans had no idea what was going on. Mm. There were people dead in the street, and they knew they were Jews. Oh no, no, the, the, that oh, I, I'm yeah. talking about the camps. No, sure, the persecutions. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's gone all the time. But the um. um There's a tale of a, a person who's wandering in the wilderness and 
they see a person lying on the ground um, in need and they see another one come upon that person and pick up a branch and begin to beat them mercilessly. And um, they uh, go to intervene, saying this is a terrible thing that's being done. But it's too late. And uh, uh, the person runs off. And the person is bemoaning this slaughter. And um, the another person comes upon the scene and asks what's happened, and they describe it. And they say, oh, no, you shouldn't grieve because that man slaughtered an entire village and that fellow lost his wife and family. He's the only one left. And he's been searching for that man for decades. Um, do you get... The point, the way things appear, you, you don't. I mean, the way things appear, the way the way the way things appear, are not always what it seems. And if, if you're going to, uh, the, and, and governments have a right to uh, withhold information if it has to do with their military or police powers to try and protect. Oh. You, I mean, surely, you, you, you think now, because we can have the hindsight of hundreds of thousands of records opened up and dozens and dozens and dozens of books, that you could have, if you say... If I have the same kind of knowledge right now, and I live, I'm living in the Third Reich, that's an entirely different question. There was resistance fighters, and they were getting, they knew, they weren't, but this isn't, this isn't, anyway. And what about all the people rounded up? I mean, your neighbors, and... And so, well, Kate, there are, there are institutions in civil society that are designed for answering that question. If I say that's not the church, look, it's absolutely needful that there be a police force to protect commerce and people in in their life and property. But the church has no right to start a police force. That's not its calling. Christians who see the need could say, "We, we, we need to get a police force for our little town. And, and could pursue that along with non-Christians. But, but are, are you saying that then it's the duty of the church to raise a police force or an army? The Vatican has an army, but... Because something's evil doesn't mean that this institution has been given the power of the sword to oppose it. in churches speaking about the evils. And I've heard you preach sermons where you didn't address the specific evil that was going on, but you preached from Scripture to teach people 
the biblical morality or whatever. Well, that that was the illustration. That was the illustration I used last week with respect to abortion. Yes, and that's a better the, illustration the, than talking about the church. Well, no, it's it's in kind the same. There might there might have been some look. Uh, Take the question of homosexuals in the military. There might have been some Christians who thought that that's a terrible thing. It's such a a distortion of our human nature, and we should never have that. And there might have been other Christians who thought homosexual people enjoy the blessings of liberty and uh, prosperity that everybody else in the country is. Why shouldn't they be a part of defending that? And other Christians might have thought um, that... um, uh, well, I, <laughs> the point is, you, surely you can see that it doesn't belong to the church to adjudicate that question. Hey, Dave. Yes. I think of circumstances under which uh, the civil government and its impositions upon the church require a church to. to uh, refuse to recognize the civil government's impositions and thereby uh, take a stand, which would appear to be um, which would appear to be rebellious against the government. And those two circumstances are the German confessing church and the church in the People's Republic of China today. You have to be recognized as a PRC-sanctioned church and adopt the, uh, I think it's called the three-self interpretation of the Bible. Um, Are those fundamentally different kinds of circumstances? It's it's one thing to say that I cannot sin under any authority, whether church or state. I, I cannot be forced to sin. But that does not give me the right uh, for example, to if the police are coming to arrest me because I uh, preach that only men and women ought to be married, if the police are coming to arrest me, that doesn't give me a right to go out and get a gun and tr- try to keep them from coming into my house. No, obviously not. Um... Or for me to get the session and say they ought to come over and help. I, I, I would have an obligation and, and no member of our congregation would have a right to try and stop the police. Is that, would, would you not agree with that? extreme circumstances, I'm wondering if there is a requirement for a church to separate from the civil authority um, because, as Bonhoeffer put it, um, every choice is evil because the government had arranged it so that every choice for a confessing Christian was evil. Well, I mean, people have long fled and uh, whole communities have fled to avoid persecution and uh, yeah, that, that but that, that's a different question altogether I think at least Steve but sure I mean 
America's partly settled because uh, independents and Presbyterians were being persecuted by Charles II, and they thought, we'll find a new home. Well, <laughs> we'll have more time for you to uh, assault me on this. Um, <laughs> this is uh, not an easy question, and it's not one that I think we regularly think about, but I hope you'll at least be willing to take seriously the countervailing arguments um, that uh, and keep it in your mind. We're talking about the church as an institution, the church as a government, not talking about Christians and what Christians ought to do. And I, I, I'm fully persuaded, as a matter of moral and political life, of the argument of the Declaration of Independence. I would have been part of one of those uh, uh, government, uh, what do they call them, committees of... Uh, committees of... Public safety. Public safety. I, I'd have been happy to be part of a committee on public safety. The, um, as a political matter. I think that people have a right to. But I, I would not have right a right to say from the pulpit, every one of you in, in New Hope ought to be a member of a committee on public safety if you're a Christian. That's what this doctrine is about. Well, <laughs> I appreciate your... Patience, all of you, and uh, um, the uh, Kate. I'm getting some kind of message over your. Are you trying to say something again, or no? No. Oh, all right. Um, well, uh, let me pray for us, and we'll meet again next week. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider these great matters and some that are heart-wrenching and uh, mind-bending and we pray that you'd help us to be people that think principially and courageously and we pray that you would help us to um, then live well in faithful service to our Savior and we ask it in his name. Amen.